Welcome to episode 57 of Reading Between the Reels. I'm Craig Dickinson. Thank you so much for joining us today. If you're a new listener, we're so glad you found us. If you've been enjoying the show, please tell someone about us. Send a tweet, post to Facebook, write a review on your favorite podcast catcher, or just recommend the show to a friend. Today on the show, I'm joined once again by Corey Heitschmidt. How's it going, Corey? Absolutely fantastic. Uh, And today we are talking about James Cameron's Avatar from 2009. As you may have heard, the sequel, Avatar The Way of Water, uh, is due out very soon. I think it's coming out two days after this drops, actually. So we're going to be revisiting the original film today. And Corey, why don't you start us off with your overall thoughts on Avatar? All right. Well, it's great to get going again and talk about this movie, one of the biggest blockbuster movies of all time, right? Um, you know what, Craig, I think looking back after watching Avatar again, I think this is a groundbreaking film for its time, but you look at this movie after 12 years, 13 years, this movie has held up well. I watched it again and the CGI has held up. The story has held up. Um, it's a movie that's, I think, still relevant today in a lot of the themes that they have going through it. I think it's uh, it's a movie that's been enjoyed by millions of people. The box office would tell you that. Um, I think the the thing about it, I would say about this movie, is it's one of the first full length three D movies that I saw in the theater when it came out. I remember this movie going three D, and I went and watched it three D with my wife, and I remember thinking how cool it was in the beginning. Midway through, I started to kind of be annoyed with the 3d image and then by the end of the movie i was like done with 3d so (laughs) i think the two hour 42 minute runtime on 3d is a little bit too much but uh and i remember thinking afterwards oh yeah that'd be great if more movies came out 3d but but uh no i i i was done with 3d movies after that it was just a little bit too much and um but the movie is a story as a whole the actors the character james cameron has made an incredible movie with this and I know it's a movie that he was pushing for more than 20 years to do and finally made it. And I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing what the sequel is. I think sometimes if the sequel doesn't match the same success that this movie made, do you call it a success? I mean, that's the hard thing. He set such a home run on the first one that uh, anything less on the second one is, is going to be kind of hard to follow up on. But I think if you go into it as a fan and say, I just look for a good story and a good good theme and to continue the story of Jake Sully, then I think it would be great. Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, the film almost made $3 billion like with the re-release and, and whatnot. And it is, as you mentioned, the biggest movie ever. And I mean, that is, that's, I think that's a fair question. Like if the second one does not make $3 billion and actually you know surpass it, especially with inflation and ticket prices going up, like, is it a failure? I mean, that's a, that's a hard question. Like you've set the bar so high, uh, you know, with the, with the money on that. Uh, I would say I, I only saw this in 2d. My I, Jody doesn't like, my wife does not like 3d movies. So we went to the 2d and I was fine with that too. Um, but my, the biggest thing I came away with from, from this film is that I just loved this movie in the theater. I was like, this is why we go to the movies and I've enjoyed watching it at home as well. And I don't have a small television, but it's a different thing when you're in the crowd, you know, with a packed theater, giant screen, this is an experience movie. And I'm looking forward to hopefully replicating that with the second one. 
You know, it's interesting you bring up that experience movie because I think one of my struggles with this movie is a two-hour and 42-minute timeline. It's not a movie I can just pop in while I'm doing stuff. Um, I mean, if I'm doing something, you know, as a teacher, if I'm in my classroom and stuff, it is a movie I could pop in. But this isn't one that I've done because it is an investment to watch this movie. It mm -hmm. is an experience to watch this movie. And so it makes it hard to be a DVD that I grab off the shelf on a, on a lazy day and say, hey, I think I want to watch Avatar again. You know, it's because an it's such an investment, such an yeah. experience. And seeing it in a theater is is that is that an experience. But I think also seeing the movie because you're so ingrained into this movie. If you watch this, um, it's not sometimes that casual movie. And I think that's one of the things that you realize is like, here's a movie that makes three billion. Is it my go to Tuesday afternoon? I'm at home and I need to watch a movie that I'm going to put on. Right. It's kind of a it's tough category. Yeah, it's funny. As we're talking about this, I'm remembering like when we first knew each other, this was a movie that came out on Blu-ray. I was like, we got to come over and watch it, but we could never find a time to watch it because it was so long. <laughs> Such an experience. It's yeah. three hours. Yeah, it's it's a long movie. It's not a easily digestible. And in this time I watched it in chunks. Uh, and that was fine, but I think because I knew the movie, but I think that really these, these movies are not designed to be chunked out that way. Like it is long, but you are supposed to just sit and just let it wash over you. The chunk thing is one that speaks to me because here's what I did to get ready for the show. I ended up, I watched half the movie last night, got some stuff done, got the kids to bed, you know, did, did stuff we had to on Thursday night and then watched the rest this morning. And what I noticed, because I was watching it with a different intent, I was looking more attention to things that we're going to talk about on the podcast. But because I turned it off, this morning I woke up, couldn't wait to finish the film. Hmm. I mean, it's a good film. Yeah. And because I was paying attention to so many different other things than I did the first time I saw it, it made me want to get back in. I actually felt like Jake Soley just a little bit, hmm. longing to get back to the Avatar. Because when he comes out, and he eats that breakfast real quick and then gets back in there. He's yep. so eager to get back in. And that's kind of how I felt this morning was down in my breakfast trying to get back in. And I thought, oh, my gosh, I've become Jake Sully. You know, I paused the, I paused this, went to the real world, and then had to come back. So, And so I think it's a – if you can get a movie that makes you think that way and kind of almost identify with the character a little bit because you did what the character did, that's a good movie. Nice. Well, let's talk about some of those those aspects that we were critically looking for uh, as we're watching. Start with cinematography, composition, color, camera work. Did you have things that, that jumped out at you this time when you were intentionally looking for them? There were. You know, the color thing stands out to me because that was uh, just after the color changes, which is so noticeable. Here's Avatar. Neon, bioluminescence, life everywhere glowing pristine beautiful scenery and then the part where they're going in to arrest jake and grace and pull them to take them out of the the pods that they're in it's a muted color mm -hmm. did you notice that it's a muted color it's a little bit slow motion the music changes and that color change was so noticeable i i don't even know what the coloring how they describe that but it's almost like uh a faded color. Yeah. It's like desaturated. Yes. Right. And, it's not bright. And I don't, you know, the, the thing about it is it just kind of made it more 
dream scenario or just nightmare scenario then I think because here it's falling apart. Everything's falling apart. You know, all the things he's accomplished and we're sucked into the thing of him joining the tribe and being one of the people. And then he's getting yanked away from them. And it was really good. It was a really fantastic use of color. Um, And then I think the other part is to contrast that with the entire movie, the color that you see through everything. Yeah, there's some some very intentional color in this one, and, and and sometimes we can't necessarily pull out exactly what what, what they're going with, uh, but in this one, I think it's super obvious. Like the fact that the the Navi are blue, and blue oftentimes can can be associated with calmness and tranquility, right? That they're very much in tune with nature, and then you have the green in the link unit, which can often symbolize new beginnings or growth, and it's like that's part of Jake's transformation. He puts, puts himself down in that green. And of course the forest is green too, but it, like that color could have been anything inside the link unit. And they went with, went with green there. I thought that was fascinating. Yeah. The as far as, is, yeah, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say the other thing is uh, early on, just the bioluminescence of everything they have. Once she puts out the fire from the spear that he had made in the very beginning when he was stuck in the forest overnight, and then as the fire goes out and then all the, the forest lights up was uh, just an amazing way to just pull the, pull the viewer in and to create this fantastical mythical world, you know, of, of everything you could desire to see in that color. So, yeah, there's nothing natural there. Everything is very alien uh, on Pandora and it, it yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll get to world building. We'll talk more about that, but yeah, it's, it's definitely not, you know, filmed in South America or whatever. It's, yeah. it's incredibly unique. Um, I did want to talk about with, with composition that there are some really interesting like geometric shapes, like triangles, which is always something I like to look for that first flashback sequence. Uh, you have Jake at the apex with two company men behind him where he's kind of in the four, he's in the foreground and they're in the background, which is kind of fascinating because it's all hinging on him. And then you also have one later, um, after home tree comes down, it kind of it cuts to this very static shot where you see Jake sitting in the wheelchair, and he's in the foreground again. And then you have uh, Grace is on the right, and uh, and Norm is on the left. And it's this very deliberate triangle as they're all kind of hanging their heads in, you know, the situation. They're very depressed after Home Tree's been destroyed. I did not notice that. Yeah. The the ship at the very end is very triangle shaped too. The big bomber that they take out, yeah, is a triangle shaped bomber. Yeah. The biggest thing I think I noticed with with composition though is just the sense of scale in this film is almost overwhelming. You know that it's the size of of the gas giant that Pandora um, orbits is. I mean, it fills the screen repeatedly. But the first one that I was, I was struck by was uh, they have this kind of this juxtaposition between they're showing like Jake's brother is he's being cremated and they have this kind of fire sound. And then it's a much louder fire sound. They kind of juxtapose. I was going to talk about this in sound, but it just makes as much sense now. And then you see the landing craft going down to Pandora and it's tiny. It's really interesting how they have that. Uh, it's, it's like a repeated motif through the film that these things are much bigger. Like the tree is much bigger than you would anticipate. Just the Navi. Huge contrast. Yeah. The Navi versus humans. Like you get to see them at the end in that final battle. Like when um, one of them lands actually on the bomber. And you're like, oh, that's right. I forgot. These guys are like nine feet tall. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. 
Um, I also really enjoy the fact that there is the video log that takes up like the full screen that you kind of get to see that. And if you're paying attention, you can actually kind of track the timeline. I thought that was yeah. a really interesting thing to do in a feature film where it's like, oh, we're going to fill the screen with just this guy's face and you know, looking at a computer screen. Yeah. And that the, the video log, the video log is a great way to kind of, it's almost as if you're getting an inside look into what he's talking about. And you know, those video logs are being watched because uh, Colonel, the Colonel uses it later in the film against him, you know? And so I think it's one of those things. It's, it's a great little insight into the things he's thinking into the things he's talking about. And you don't, you don't get very much of it. You just get a little snippet of it. Um, but I think, I think the video logs is a great way to do that and to, to cut away to show the span of it. Yeah. What about camera work? Did you have anything in camera work that, that you noticed that stood out to you different shots or. Yeah. I think the thing that stood out to me was there is a incredible amount of sweeping shots. The camera was always drifting and moving and showing that scale that you're talking about, where it's it's panning back, it's panning to the left, it's moving to the right, and then as you know, as the hero comes forward, it kind of stops and focuses on that hero. Like there was there was some impressive camera work that that you do that, and you don't even realize you're drifting to the side, but your eyes are still getting pulled over towards the action of what they want you to see. Um, because at first, I started to notice that, thinking, okay, I'm focusing on camera work. And it was a little distracting to me. But pretty soon, I forget about it, and I'm right in there, and I'm getting my eyes are getting pulled towards Soli, or my eyes are getting pulled towards Natiri, or it just is. It just what happens. You just become a natural, fluid thing with what the camera's doing. Yeah, and with the flying scenes, you end up having some Dutch angles, that 45 degree angle, but it's not to disorient, which it usually is. In this case, it's meant to kind of just to suck you into that, to kind of give you a little bit of that illusion of kind of like banking while you're sitting on the ecran, right? It's, it's again, just to kind of bring you in all those sweeping shots to just let you experience, you know, vicariously what's going on, on, on Pandora. Yeah. Now, the other thing that I, the guy who's the cinematographer is Mauro Fiore mm-hmm. and he, his work now, I wasn't quite sure what's a cinematographer do, you know, and I, and then to find out, well, that's the guy that's running the camera. That's the, that's your cameraman who's doing a lot of the work. And I always think in my terms of my mind that a director is doing the videoing, but it's not right. The director's setting the scene, want this, you know, he's talking to the actor, he's communicating to the cameraman. They're doing all these things, but it's the, this cameraman has a specific thing to do all these different tasks with that camera. And you look at his work, he's done A-Team, Real Steel, Equalizer, uh, Magnificent Seven, Dark Phoenix, Spider-Man No Way Home. Yeah. So, I mean, this is a guy who is doing such an impressive job with camera work. and But then to think, most of this is CGI. Yeah. And so how do you, as I mean, you, you have to realize the talent of people who don't get their name as well known from a, from the biggest movie in history. Yeah. You know, have we ever heard his name? Um, but when you look and you say that, how does this guy, this guy puts some incredible shots in there on a world that is not existing in what he's seeing, but he's still able to zoom in where he needs to be. And, and I know some of that's computer work and things that they're doing and the editors, but, but I think, 
the parts, the real live action shots that he's having to film, he's having to do that. Yeah. And that is a talent. That is a talent that is stood up in one of, I mean, the amount of awards that this was up for, for cinematography was, there was seven or eight awards it was up for. Yeah. And I'm glad you brought that up because he, he did win the, the Academy Award for Best Cinematography for this film, but it's not it's not well known. I like, we know this movie is beautiful. We know it's well shot, but we don't know it's the guy. So I'm glad that you pulled, pulled that out. Um, some, just some really interesting in shots in this one. I really like, uh, there's a couple things I wanted to point out when, when we first meet Jake, uh, it's a close up on his eye and he's, it's a bird's eye view, just looking down on him. But then you also, there's a parallel shot just a little bit later on with his brother looking down on him. And it's like the way I took it is they're both dead in a certain way. Like Jake's life has ended at that point. It's about to start again. He's reborn throughout this movie. I thought that was a really interesting juxtaposition there. That's a hero's journey. Yeah. I mean, this is absolutely, we'll talk more about that at the end, but yep. like, this is an absolute perfect. I'm just plugging it of, now of heroes. <laughs> yeah. People were like, well, I've seen this story before. I'm like, yeah, no kidding. It's the monomyth. Um, I love Quaritch's introduction. It's like, you got the camera basically on the ground, walking his boots like you're under his feet, like he's in charge. He's on top of everything on the situation, right? Then you have this quick shot of his waist with this giant weapon on him. And you kind of get to see, uh, like you see Norm, like kind of looking over at him. And you get to see kind of people's impression of him before we even see his face. And then the first thing, then we see the scar, the giant scar on the back of his head. And then he pivots around. Like it's a great introduction for that character. His boots walking in yeah. and the gun that you say on his hip, there is the subtlest leather sound of that moving in the leather yeah. so whoever was doing the sound work on this nails that walk that uh, because I, I it stood out to my mind because of this the notes i was taking him walking in and as he's talking and setting up the stage and you hear the gun in the leather just stretching the leather a little bit as you move which is a natural sound is right there and uh it is it sets the whole stage for this man to come in who is such an important character. Now, the other part, maybe you didn't notice this, when he turns around, and I think it's very, calls back to the movie Patton with uh, George C. Scott. He's standing in front of the window. The, did you notice the window has slats on it and yeah. a 50, and it makes it look like a flag? It kind of looks like a flag, yeah. And absolutely. so it's setting up this big speech and motivation of Patton, this big general who's in charge, you know, this colonel who's in charge. Um, it was it was small. It's subtle. It's not something you, you necessarily notice until someone points out to you. But subconsciously, hidden in the background, you see this. And so you, you realize the level of this character that they're putting in front of us at this moment for this introduction. Right. Yeah, this film serves as a little bit of a Rorschach test in some regard, like you can look at that and go, Oh, this is like an anti-American film because he's the bad guy and it stands for, they stand in for America. Or you could look at it and just say, well, no, it's corporate greed. And that could be anybody, you know, it could be an analog for the native Americans in our country, or it could just be natives anywhere. You know, there's, it, it's universal in a, in a lot of ways where you can kind of take in what you have and then enjoy and see what the message that you want to see from this film. Well, I think there's themes there. There's multiple themes going through that. And I think that's one of the things that you find in this as an audience is that you'll find a theme that you gravitate to, that you like, that you resonate with or, or that you root for. Yeah. 
So you, you mentioned the, the leather sound, which is awesome. And it, that sounds like a natural transition into the sound portion of, of the show. Are you ready to move down to talk about yes. sound effects, soundtrack, and vocal sounds? Cool. Um, I already mentioned the uh, the flames and then kind of juxtaposed with the landing craft, much louder thrusters. And it's always, it's so much louder. It always kind of, uh, it gets my attention very quickly. It's almost like, almost shocking how loud it is when he's blasting down in there. Um, but it is, it, it is a, the beginning of his rebirth. And I, I think it needs to be that dramatic. Uh, I also really enjoyed like the link phasing in sounds, but the, uh, the, the ambient creature noise is, am- is amazing. Like this is another reason why you need to see this in a theater. Cause we just don't have enough speakers <laughs> in a home theater to be able to catch all that stuff. And that is so true because you realize how much, you know, you sit in the theaters and you hear that THX surround sound and all the different speakers they have going that yeah. really immerse you in it. This is one of those movies where if you don't have a surround sound, you are going to get lost in some of those things and not hear the, you know, the little chirping behind you or the roar behind you. I mean, just the different spots that you would have um, the sound mixed in there. Yeah. I think though, my favorite sound, uh, instance in this film is where you have uh, RDA comes in and forcibly removes Grace and Jake from the link right after the home tree falls and the sound kind of drops out it's or it's muffled and I think it's very much meant to make us feel as numb as those characters are feeling because our senses have been dulled in that and it's just such an emotional just how do I feel about this it's so shocking uh that's how that's the way I, I I took that uh the parts of the sound that I love, and this mixes with the visual, is every time that the the air of Pandora was mixed in with the when they were breathing the air, like the the windows got cracked at the end and Jake is struggling for air and can't breathe, or they always had you. And when they put their mask on, you hear it depressurized. That little sound, really high pitched hum, which you know it took a second or two before they got their air, and. You know, I mean, sometimes in the rush of a movie, you'll skip over those things, you know, or you'll miss those things. But they, those are intentional things that were placed there in that sound to let you know, oh my gosh, you're, I mean, you're struggling to breathe with them. And then all of a sudden you're waiting for the air and they're waiting for the air. There's a little bit of a, like anticipation for it. And so I always thought it's funny how small sounds and things like that can make you feel a little more invested into the, the battle or what's going on. Yeah. I'm, gl- I'm glad you brought that up because, you know, a, a lot of these films that we do, we have to assume intent. We do like, well, that's the end product and they, it went out that way. So we are assuming they meant that with James Cameron, we know it's intentional because yeah. nothing, I mean, there's a reason this guy takes forever to make these movies. He's so meticulous with, with every facet of his films. Well, and even then, the gas moving through the air, you could see just a change as the airs are mixing. It's almost that that uh, mirage that you see off in the distance in the heat where it's just rising or the mixing of airs. Um, it's, that's detail. That's detail that's put in there, you know, and, and yeah. rather than just – I always think of uh, Total Recall where Arnold Schwarzenegger goes out there and we know he can't breathe, but we don't see – the air is mixing like that. Well, this part was where the oxygen's out. You know, you don't mm-hmm. see those things. Like the air is here. We see it creeping, and you can watch it coming closer to a, to his face. And you're like, oh my gosh, he's going to struggle. Like it's almost a, it's almost like a character creeping up. So it's, but then when you have the sound with it and them struggling, it makes it more 
invested as a viewer. Yeah. The other thing I think is the sounds on the two animals that Jake meets, the, the big panther creature and the horse that he first bonds with. The Pele right. horse and the Thanator was the name of the okay. panther yeah. creature. Is those two sounds almost. are from Jurassic Park. It's the the horse, the sounds of the horse is uh, making are the viper or the velociraptor sounds. Interesting. And they took them from Jurassic Park and then the they tweaked down the T Rex for the panther creature. And so after hearing that and then watching that, you start to see it and you're oh my gosh, the you can definitely tell the velociraptor. You're like, yeah. oh my gosh, that's the Velociraptor. Interesting. So, yeah, it's quite interesting. You know, they borrow those sounds from things to bring them back in and and uh, remix them. And and then the other part is the the viper wolves that are chasing him. The little wolves that are chasing him in the first night, where he's trying to fight him off with fire and the spear. Yep. And he knows he has to battle him, so he says, "I ain't got all night." You know, like let's do this. Is the hyena sounds they're making throughout the whole fight, the whole chase scene with him is very it's, they used hyena sounds and it's a great way that you have this huge fantasy world with the hyena sounds but you're able to relate it back to something that's on our planet and you start to go i know what's going on here it's a mm -hmm. it's a hunt it's a chase and it's a pack and they're communicating back and forth and going after him and he's alone and anyway it really pulled me in and i thought it's just such a simple thing to think on one planet and another planet, you could have some similarities, even though it's a fantastical world. So it's great that they do that. Yeah, those are great touchstones so that we kind of shorthand for, for the audience. We don't have to tell you that he's in danger. You can you can listen and you know instinctively. Yeah. Uh, I did want to point out a soundtrack, James Horner, who did this. Uh, he's done so many great things. Rest in peace, James Horner. Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. I mean, I can hear that theme in my right now right um he did titanic which there's a lot of similarities to titanic in this one um our last movie willow i mentioned during willow uh that there's some simil uh, some similarities between like when home tree crashes that that light motif that's played there and also laura dannon's theme and i i listened carefully for it this time there are a few different changes but it's very evocative of that uh but lots of good light motif in this one um, there's a, there's a pop song that plays at the end. Uh, Leona Lewis sings it. I see you is what it's called, which is one of the big themes of the film, which we'll talk about, I think a little bit more at the end, but it's played instrumental. It's an instrumental version of that. It's played a kind of a love theme from Natiri and Jake. You hear that a lot during the, like the training sequences and stuff that also are the beginnings of their relationship. So I enjoyed that. Every time I see leitmotif, I enjoy that aspect very much. Yeah. I think the part of the soundtrack that stands out to me the most is uh, the battle, the final battle, culminating battle, when they start to, the Navi start to lose. And the battle yep. is turned towards uh, the colonel and his men. Is all of a sudden the sound and everything like is focused on, there's a wailing song in there where it's a very, a voice in the back and it's, Yep. It's almost the death song kind of thing that when you hear this type of song come on in a battle, you know someone's losing, someone's dying. And there's several key characters that die. Natiri's, uh, her dragon gets killed. Um, the Sute gets killed. Trudy, Trudy dies in her chopper. Yep. And this whole slow motion of scenes where they're fighting, but they're losing and 
you know, it's almost setting the stage for we have to retreat, we have to regroup and, and, but that music is haunting when it comes in and it really sets that stage for you, you feel like the crushing blow of defeat is possible here. Yeah. And, and this is an Oscar nominated score and I'm still shocked it didn't win. I, I think it's an amazing score. I really do. It, it's, it is, it's kind of a combination of a couple different things. There's kind of a traditional orchestral score for when you, you're with RDA and for a lot of the film, but when, when you're with the Navi, it's kind of this very primitive score and you have like woodwinds and real heavy drums. Uh, and so you have these very different things that the bridge together. And then like you mentioned, you have this kind of choral aspect of it too, with the Navi and some of it is, is diegetic. We see them chanting as well. Very different um, themes or, or, or motifs rather of these two different types, but it blends together really, really well, even though they're so different. It's a masterful job. Yes. Um, as far as vocal sounds go, uh, I mentioned the video logs earlier and I, I loved how at the beginning you hear him narrating and we're like, oh, okay, this is in first person. And then you're like, nope, there's actually a practical reason for the narration. It's these video logs that actually, you know, serve a plot point too. You mentioned earlier, you know, Korich is able yep. to, you know, watch those and, and, and figure out what, what Jake's actually been doing. Yeah. And the vocal sounds of the language that they bring in. Um, the acting, the hissing for the Navi and the chanting and the, all of those aspects that they brought in. I, and I had no idea. I didn't realize that James Cameron had spent from a, a January to April in 2006 was that guys working on this language. And they came up with over a thousand words. Mm -hmm. James Cameron himself, like input, like 30 words is from what I read yep. that were specific. And they made up the language for the film and, uh, just the structures of everything they were going to do, how they were going to talk, how they were going to speak. And it's very um, powerful when they do that. I mean, it yeah. has its own language. It's similar when Star Trek, you know, brings in Klingon and it's Klingon's an actual language. And, right. So. And and we get different subtitles. They're, they're essentially in, in papyrus, which is fun. That was a fun thing to kind of find. I'm like, oh, wow, I'm going to be writing some documents in papyrus now. Maybe start sending some emails. <laughs> papyrus, but and there was an SNL skit recently about that as well, which is is pretty hilarious. Um, I also thought it was cool how they did kind of an echoey sound in, during the flashbacks. It's very removed from what's actually happening. It kind of lets you know that it is a flashback. It happens a couple of times, uh, and this time for the first time I, I've seen this movie several times. But there, you can actually kind of hear the ancestral voices in the tree of voices. During that yes. part when Natiri introduces them, I've never, you could actually almost decode what they're saying. And I never, I just had been noise to me until this time. I was like, oh my gosh, there's actually a language being, uh, being spoken here. Yeah. And you know, I, I did notice this time that I could hear some, some laughter. I could hear children laughing in it and different things that I was like, well, it's a little, there's some specific things in there that are overlaid. Yeah. Uh, anything else for sound before we talk about performance? I think it was great. All right. Uh, let's talk about performance. Um, I, solid all around. Just And the most amazing thing for me performance-wise is a lot of this is motion capture. And I don't... I, I'm, it's, I can check my brain very quickly on this. I, I do not feel Uncanny Valley with this film at all. Like it's... You have to remind yourself that this is not <laughs> being shot on film, right? That this is in a computer somewhere. They're so they're so lifelike when you see the Navi interacting with each other and with humans. You know, I think 
I think it shows the level. I mean, I think this is Sam Worthington, Worthington at this time. I don't think he was the biggest name, an actor for this. And, uh, but the level of the main characters, their acting is absolutely on point. I, and I go back and I read some of the names of people that could have been that passed up on these roles and studios mm-hmm. that passed up on it. And I think I couldn't see them in this. I couldn't see them in this role. I couldn't see them bringing this. It's, the people that James Cameron had here were perfect for their spots. Every single one. I think uh, to do that level of acting with, with at that time, motion capture and the face and the acting and the cameras, we've all seen those you know images behind the scenes and their special effects, to commit to that and then to translate that onto a screen in a CGI for a character that it makes the movie i mean this this was a risk in 2009 i think about 2009 cgi at that time and i know he didn't make it in the 90s because the waited for technology to catch up to him because he's he's got the actors here but he needs the technology so it's uh it is something that makes this this whole level of acting commitment and and investing of who they are very believable and pulls the audience in yeah, Sam Worthington's great. Zoe Saldana is also fantastic, and then you have Stephen Lang doing you know what we've we, we described with Michael Shannon from Man of Steel, like just chewing scenery. Every scene he's in, you you can't stop watching him. Can I just I'm plugging Stephen Lang right now because I absolutely love him in villain roles. Yeah, Tombstone. Yep, he was incredible. You hate and not, him, yeah. but you love him. Right? I was honestly surprised that. He was. It was the same guy because he's so different from what's Ike, right? In, yes. in in Tombstone, so different than this movie than versus that movie. And then to get here and his lines and everything he delivers and his stories that he tells, you know, and uh, even the promises to make. I'm going to get you your legs, son. And you know, it's an empty promise. You know, it's not something he's going to deliver on. You know, and it's just. All of it is just incredible. He he is so perfect for this role for this movie. Yeah, and, uh, and he's coming back for the off. next one, so that'll be interesting. What were you saying? They killed him off, so he's not in the next one. Oh no, he's coming back. I'm not what? sure exactly. Yeah, no, he's this. I did yeah. not pay attention to the trailer. Small to spoiler, but yeah, he's back somehow in in like oh. a as like a navi like an avatar somehow. You know what that means? That's how good he is. He's so good that we're going to bring him back. We're yeah. going to find a way, save him out of this, and he's coming back. Yeah. Well, Sigourney Weaver's back as well. So, there, I mean, yeah. there's – yeah. Um, so, we started talking about some of the dialogue, hinted at anyway. Do you have some examples of, of the dialogue from this film? It's not, I don't know if it's necessarily a real quotable film. Um, I don't know if I quote lines from it other than maybe one or two of Quartz's lines. But there's some really interesting and I thought thematic lines that I pulled out yes. this time I thought was pretty great. Uh, I think I think one of the things Stephen Lang when he talks about a uh, uh, shavetail Louis, yep. you know his first day there, and I thought, what in the world's a shavetail like? It's a, a term that's lost. I'm like, what? He just throws us in there, yeah. and we just accept it and move on. So I looked it up to see and find out that it was a 19th century cavalry term for new troopers, and their horses had shaved tails so that everybody else could easily identify who the dangerously inexperienced troops were. Wow. So that they knew, stay away from them during training exercises or give them room because they're <laughs> going to screw up. 
And so he describes that's how he got that battle scar, you know, and he said, I felt like a shaved tail Louie. And, wow. uh, okay. But it sets the tail when you know that. If you know what that is, and you go back and you watch him describe that scene, now you know this is an old traditional man who is now a current, you know, who's this colonel leading this. And so there's no room for him to, you know, to view the Navi any other way than, yeah. than how he does. So yeah. someone could be conquered. So that's fantastic. It's basically like, you know, student driver on a car. Right. <laughs> that's great. Thanks, Cor. I did I had no idea. I just, I just let that wash over me. I'm like, that's just an expression. And I get the, you know, I get the gist. I don't have to know what it is, but now knowing what it is, like that's yeah. a whole other level of awesome. Yeah. Attention to detail. Uh, one thing that I, I pointed out, or I not pointed out, but one thing that I gravitated toward this time um, is as they're landing, Jake's landing on, on Pandora. He says, one life ends and another begins. And it feels like he's talking about him and his brother because his brother has just died and he's telling us that story, but he could just as easily be talking about himself. And I thought that was a really interesting line that had multiple layers to it. Yeah. The, keeping with that, and then later fast forward in the film to where he goes to attack the big dragon to make it his. Yep. Um, tar- Taruk. And I wrote this one down because it was such a powerful line. He says, outcast, betrayer, alien. I was in a place, I was in a place that I does not see. I needed their help, and they needed mine. But to ever face them again, I was going to have to take it to a whole new level. And so then he was above the top dragon to attack because he says that thing never looks up because it yep. never has to. And uh, it was just amazing because he throws out this outcast, betrayer, alien line, and you think it's all three things. Here he he comes in as a marine who's paralyzed. And everybody's kind of cast him aside. And then he goes and gets in with an AV and becomes a betrayer. And uh, here he is an alien in both worlds, basically. And anyway, it just was amazing because it just kind of, I think that's, it's a small line, but the dialogue makes it everything to summarize and bring you back into who he is as a hero and how he has to be rise up to the challenge and, and almost a magical help right here to get to get going in the hero's journey. So the rebirth. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. So I, I wrote down a couple of Quaritch's speeches, but I don't think I'll read them because they're super long and I love every bit of them and I'll, I'll save them. If you want to read them, you can. Um, but one I had was that I really like this time is, is Grace says to him uh, when she first meets him. So you just figured you'd come here to the most hostile environment known to man with no training of any kind and see how it went. What was going through your head? Which is great anyway, and you could just leave it. But his response is also really telling. And he says, maybe I was sick of doctors telling me what I couldn't do. And all it turns it like into kind of a snarky, kind of yep. funny thing into, wow, that's actually kind of inspiring. Very it's kind of both. That is. The other one uh, that I like that he does is uh, he's talking afterwards. He holds up the book on the Navi that they have. Someone has written a book about the Navi. Yeah. And he says when you want something, you make them your enemy so that you can go take what's what they have. And, uh, I thought that was a powerful line. It just kind of shows the, the whole view of the whole corporate part was that these were just savages. They were, you know, not social that they were, they were just animals that we could just move out of the way, tell them to go move somewhere else. Um, and so he made them their, they made them their enemies. And so, yep. 
I also, uh, I think this is the last one to bring up. There's, so, there, there's a lot of in- great, inspiring things, but I, I love Sigourney Weaver's character. I'm so glad she's back. She gets shot and she looks down and she sees that she's bleeding. And she says, this is going to ruin my whole day. She's it's just sarcastic. The character. It's so great. Um, but we actually is a really important thing. When we get to Hero's Journey, we'll talk about like why it's important that that Grace dies, and, and it's it's a really important plot point. Uh, any other lines of dialogue you want to you want to talk about before we move down to? Yes, I bring up the line of unobtainium, the word unobtainium. Yeah, slipping that in there, which by the way is an actual term. Mm-hmm. It goes back to the 1950s. Um, but Giovanni Ribisi mm-hmm. as Parker Selfridge does that. Which, by the way, you know, here's a level of acting for this guy. That guy has been in so many roles from Friends and to Saving Private Ryan to Avatar. Any movie this guy is in is absolutely, he does great. He commits to the roles. He's incredible at what he do. I mean, his level of talent, I think, is incredible. And he plays this little corporate guy making all the decisions. And I'm the one that's in charge. I'm the one that tells the colonel when to go. And... Uh, he does such a great job, but just to throw that little line in there of unobtainium, which, by the way, is very out of place when he does it. He comes in and he's talking to Grace and he grabs the little rock and holds it up and says, this is obtainium. It's just a summary for the audience to know the place of the move of what's going on. It's like, I'm yep. going to give you this little backfill and that the dialogue there was very OK. She knows what's going on. You didn't, you didn't have to explain it to her. So it's not a natural conversation. But I love that term unobtainium because it just kind of tells tells everyone right in there. Oh, okay. Well, we know this is something that's unobtainable, and it must be very right. important and very worth a, mo- a bunch of money. So yeah, and there's our MacGuffin. Uh, for body language, um, I love that Jake is just kind of grinning at Quaritch during that opening speech because he's not intimidated by it. You know, he even makes a line about makes a makes a quote about uh, you know how safety trainings or or safety briefings are really comforting you know, to make you feel at ease. Uh, I thought it was really interesting. What this time I was watching the way Norm Norm Spone his his reactions while Grace is praising Jacob. They're sitting at the dinner table, and you could just see him just like he's been kind of usurped as like the expert on the Navi, and he's just kind of slouching down and yeah, he doesn't There's say anything. Jealousy on his part, yeah. Um, but the one thing I wanted to point out this time was I, I love, it's amazing that it's, it's motion capture and it's not in real time. It's not with real actors actually on set. It's when there's a scene where, where Natiri is helping Jake with the bow and she kind of readjusts him and she gets leans in really close to him. And then he gives her this look like, is something happening here? And then you see her just kind of step back and it's like, she's shocked that she has, you know, had this shared this moment of almost intimacy with him is 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 wordless, which is it's amazing. So much is communicated with body language, and these are CGI characters. Yes, yes, with and they're communicating with just their facial expressions. Exactly. So I was like, if that would ha- if that had been two human actors, I would have been impressed. But it's two nine feet blue monkey people that are doing this. Well, and the, and the I tell you what the thing about it is sometimes in CGI the eyes are never right mm-hmm. to match a natural human, and so much is communicated in the facial expressions. But you have to have the eyes with that, and to think that in two thousand nine they pulled off the CGI to make this still hold up with those types of communications that you're talking about, like the just the hint of 
the flirting, the crossing the line, the I'm feeling something like with the eyes of a CGI. I mean, that's, that's a level of detail that they invested in to do that. Yeah. It, it's, it's pretty amazing. And you mentioned the eyes opening. I mean, that's the last shot of the film too, which is so, I mean, they talk about repeatedly, I see you meaning more than just, I physically can see that you're there. It's like, I see into you, right? I know you intimately. And then Jake's eyes open because that's the symbol of like, he is now fully reborn yeah. uh, and it works. It's not cheesy. Uh, as far as costumes, hair and makeup, my favorite thing is the fact that if you're watching carefully, Jake's hair is growing and his beard is growing and you can kind of track the passage of time with that, which I think is yeah. fast. Cause he comes, if when he shows up, he, he, he like, he's got the whole like fresh off the boat Marine thing, right? Even go, even mention, you know, it's clan jarhead. Like he, he's got the jarhead haircut and then he stops taking care of himself. You know, his, his human body as he becomes more and more Navi. He starts to become, yep. And then as even, even to the point where he's so invested in doing this, you know, he's there all the time. Scorny Weaver makes a comment about him needing a shower. Yeah. So it's like everything has been neglected now. Yeah. I'm so over here in this world. Yeah. This transformation is, is, is happening right in front of us. Um, I love Quaritch's facial head scarf thing. I, that's just a great piece of, of makeup. And like, it just feels real to me. And it's not, it's, I mean, it's serious, obviously, but it's not over the top to the point where you're like, well, that's just goofy looking. He just yeah. looks badass. Uh, and Jake has a mohawk. I, I always forget to note. That's just kind of a slick little thing. Like at the end, when they go into war, he's got a mohawk now. They've, they've shaved his, his Navi body as well. And then the other part, when they go to war, and I never noticed this before, is uh, Natiri has a handprint on her chest when they go to war, and it's five fingers. But the Navi only have four fingers. So when they were doing the war paint, somehow they put a five finger on her, which symbolizes, I think, going back to this is, you know, Jake right here. So Yeah, because Jake has five fingers. Jake has five fingers. The Avatar bodies have five. Interesting. I need, I'd miss that. That's a great catch. Small, subtle thing. Um, Trudy's blue war paint. I mean, they all have war paint was something I noticed like the, her kind of, you know, aligning herself with them. But the interesting thing I found this time was that she actually has a designation of rogue one. I thought that was great. Oh, she's rogue one before there was rogue one. She's rogue before one. rogue one. There was yeah. Trudy, and then she died, oh. which is, you know, she's rogue one. So of course she dies. I, I liked guess. her too. She was good. Yeah. You know who yeah. she reminds me of is going back to another James Cameron flick is uh, Vasquez in Aliens. <laughs> she reminds Vasquez. me of Vasquez. Vasquez is amazing. Like the pilot. Yes. Yeah. Just uh, tough. You know, she's in there. She's the best of everybody kind of thing. And I think I think she was great. See, now we're going to have to do Aliens now. Really, but pretty much just everything in, in, in James Cameron's I think so. filmography is, is ripe for discussion. Uh, anything else for performance before we talk about setting and design? No, I think those are great. All right. Um, so we mentioned before that essentially everything is on a soundstage, which is amazing because it looks like they were on location, but they're not. Yeah. They're, they're on sound stages. You do have some, um, uh, some inspiration, like the hallelujah mountains are very much inspired by, um, the yellow mountain in China, yes. which is cool. And if you look at pictures of it, you're like, yeah, I can see that. Like it's clearly not floating in the air, but the, the kind of the geometry of the of the rocks look that way. And I'm gonna I'm gonna plug this because I love them. Transformers. Uh, 
yeah. even though they're not, you know, nowhere near the top 10 list like Avatar is. Um, the in the floating mountains and things is a big part in the last one that they have the the last night as the parts are uh, Cybertron's coming in they have floating mountains and when I first watched that I thought oh my gosh this is like Avatar these floating mountains by yeah. strands and ropes that are holding them together vines holding them together as they're floating in, oh, sure. in the sky anyway yep, they, I, know I think they about. took it from Avatar I mean yeah you're going to steal from somebody steal from Avatar or Jurassic Park if you're Avatar yeah. Uh, I find it fascinating that Jake's brother, Tommy, is buried in a cardboard coffin. Like, that's literally all the money he had yeah. as far as props go. That is that is a striking image. I guess I assumed I assumed it was somewhere in space and that they were... It could be. It's a form of cost effectiveness. Like, you know, sure. we burn everything to get rid of it because it doesn't take up space, but... Yeah, I hadn't thought of it that way, but that makes more sense. Well, in any case, it's not a you know, it's not an honorable necessarily no. funeral or whatever. And like, it's there's bare minimum effort being being taken here, uh, which is interesting because you have that coffin and then you have the the link units, which are kind of coffin shaped, right? So there is this rebirth that's happening in a coffin, essentially. Like it's that's not lost on me at all. And I'm you know, I mean, it has to be intentional that you're having this death and rebirth in that in that particular instance. Uh, I just love all of the the RDA gear. And I just kept making notes of those. Like the the amp suits. I had to look up what they were, the the amplified mobility platforms, like the big kind of mech suits that they have. Yes. Which remind me immediately of aliens and and Ripley at the end. Um yeah, they're just fantastic. The one thing that I thought was really interesting this time, though, was they mentioned the bulldozers. And, you know, that's when the bulldozer get there. That's how much time you have. That's what Quartz says. The bulldozers are unmanned. And I always kind of miss that. Like, because um, Selfridge is there, uh, Giovanni Ribisi's character, back at home, back at the base, and he actually pushes the joystick forward on the guy. Right? Yeah. He's like, just lean forward. There's no people in those bulldozers. Yeah, and they have the cameras, and that's why the guy says, I'm blind Yep. When Jake smashes the cameras. So it's like you've taken – it's incredibly dehumanizing. Like you have – like it's just about, you know, industrial progress. There's there's no nature there at all from RDA's side. I thought that was kind of a really interesting – because everything else is piloted. Those giant, you know, aircraft are all piloted. Yes. But the bulldozers – nope. The, the actual method of destruction is – they're like, now we're not even going to – be here to do that everything is from afar yeah even the even the ships and things that blow down the big take out the big tree mm-hmm. they're shooting missiles and things from afar they're not they're not True. going down in there you know and, and fighting and doing it they're doing it from afar yeah everything's very, from a distance yeah there's no honor in that right it's yeah. it's very removed and it's kind of automatic and it's separated and so they can kind of justify it that way you know, they call them, they, they said they're just a bunch of monkeys and there's a lot of that dehumanization language, right? That, well, then like, you contrast that with the scene that there's a scene at the end when the tree does fall and there is a camera and you see people, they're standing there watching and there's a scene with all the, the pilots or whoever's running things in the background, the techs and everybody. Yeah. A couple of them with their eyes closed crying. Yep. Realizing the destruction they've done from afar and the fight that's going on and so even though you're removed and like you said, there's no honor there, you realize, no, but there's a lot of pain in realizing I know what's going on. Right. So, 
Yeah, they're very much they're they're separating themselves because they know what they're doing is wrong, and then you finally see, yeah, they're they're kind of admitting it to themselves. That's fascinating. Mm -hmm. uh, anything else for uh, setting design before we finish off with characters and the last few things? No, I think I think the thing to summarize all that is just the level of talent that James Cameron brought in to make the setting and the design and the world fit together with a to create an actual language to actually bring in a, a real life botanist to help design and create some type of elements in the plants, you know, so that there were things that were logical progressions or logical things for an alien world, even though it's alien. Um, all of those things, just to set that up to create a setting so that here we are 13 years later talking about this movie and there are things that are not so far out of place. There's one thing that's very out of place, but there's not so many things that are out of place that you're like, this movie holds up for generation to generation. Okay, so you got to tell me now, what's the thing that's out of place? Uh, the syringe in the root of the tree. Maybe okay. Grace takes a syringe and yeah. pulls up something from the tree root and then analyzes it right there. And uh, the whole point was to say that she was able to see that all the everything is connected. Right. And the botanist, I read an interview with her that they actually hired, said, I don't know what you would actually take from a tree root. The syringe... <laughs> part was laughable <laughs> yeah but she understood it she said even though it's a funny out of place thing she understood it because it's like i don't have time to go tell the audience we're going to take the samples go back to the lab mix them right. in something and then find out there's a dna imprint here or right it's it's, it's a way of it's sci-fi i can jump start people to go oh they're taking something oh look at what they found there's a connection here there's fluid right. and so you just immediately go in with no it's the one thing. But after she said that, and then when I watched it, I thought, well, that's just very out of place, isn't it? <laughs> Thanks, Lady. You've ruined the movie for me. But no, that, that's a great example where they have to show the audience instead of tell this very long thing. And like, there's a there's a choice there, right? You have to make that choice as a director, as a movie. You there, And that's the part when, especially with books and things, this is a great little lead into sometimes you see a book and sometimes you see a movie and you're like, oh, the book is so much better. Well, because you don't have time to do all the elements of all the things that are in the movie because it'll bog out the story or slow it down. And I have to just, I have to get the audience there quicker sometimes. And so there's a jump that you make or a leap you have to make. Yeah. Awesome. So regarding characters, I think we've touched on just about everybody, but I did want to point out um, some of the, you mentioned some of the earlier possible casting choices, uh, for, for Jake Sully, at one point, Matt Damon was offered the role, uh, but turned it down because he was doing Jason Bourne at the time. And But I, I'm happy with Sam Worthington. I think that cuts really makes it work that you don't have a movie star in this particular role. Uh, you also had, at one point, Michael Bean was, was up for the role of Quaritch. And I love Michael Bean. And he's been in so many James Cameron things. And he's great. And all of him is great in Tombstone as well, which we talked about. But... I can't see anybody other than Stephen Lang here. He just has an edge to him and a darkness to him that, and I've seen Michael Bean play the bad guy, obviously, but yes. yeah, just, I'm glad they went with Lang. I think, I think Lang is, he embodies this role, him drinking his coffee in the, in the big shootout. <laughs> Super and casual. And in there and just commanding and, you know, great shooting soldier, you know, just kind of has that. I'm praising my guys. First rounds on me when we get back kind of. Yep. I can't see anybody else deliver some of those lines that wouldn't make it sound a little more cheesy, you know? Yeah. 
but he has that whole bravado of him in this movie to make it so good. Yeah. Uh, the only thing I also wanted to point out was that, and I had missed this, that uh, Sute is is played by Laz Alonzo. And I was like, who, who is that? I, I need to figure that out. And that's, that's Mother's Milk from The Boys. And then I was like, now I can't not hear him because I love that guy. He's so great on The Boys. I did not put that together. I just, this time was the first time, so... Oh, he's I, now I like Sute from way more now. I'm like rooting for Sute. Oh, he's no, he's kind you of the foil. I love him. Mother's milk and boys. That's that's another thing we'd have to talk about someday. But yeah. um, and then you know who else I'm gonna I'm gonna throw out there is one of the absolute incredible casting choices, Wes Studi. Yeah, oh, Wes Studi as uh, Omatikaya, the clan leader. Yeah, he, I mean, from his days of, um, I mean, he he's just incredible in in all the movies he's. He's done. I think he is one of the greatest Native American actors you're ever going to find. Um, yeah. You know, I, his role in, uh, oh my gosh, now I just blanked on the name. The You know what I'm talking about, the movie. Please tell me Last of the Mohicans. Last of the Mohicans. Yes. He, in that movie is incredible. And then to hear his voice, his voice has a commanding presence yep. of uh, to be the leader of a tribe. I mean, you hear him and you're just like, yes, I'm going to listen to this guy. You know, yeah. it's just, it's amazing. So. Yeah, and, and CCH Pounder as as Moat. Well, we need to mention her as well. She's just the level of gravitas for those two actors that you have uh, is yeah, it's off the charts, which is yes. which is great. Uh, I want to briefly touch on on Hero's Journey. Um, I'm not going to go through the 12 steps in length because we're getting a little short on time. Um, but I will mention that this is one of the examples I use in my class for the monomyth. And for the longest time, I used the Matrix. And then I got to a certain point where kids hadn't seen the Matrix. But everybody had seen Avatar. And it fits the profile so well uh, for, for, the, for the hero's journey. And I mentioned earlier the thing about Grace. And Grace is one of Jake's mentors. And so that you need to have that death of the mentor thing that happens for Jake that he then the biggest thing for this in, in this film is that someone dies, which puts the struggle in really like it it ups the, the ante in this, right? You know, like we're not just this isn't just an, a disagreement we're having, it's not just a land grab. Like this is a full-on war. People will die if we continue this. Yes. You know, and then you also have you also have the gravitas of of you know, she uh, is they try to take her body or try and take her spirit and put it into the avatar body and that fails. And so then they're going to try it with Jake and we've already seen it not work. And so you have that, okay, I'm a little bit nervous because I know it doesn't work sometimes. Um, so, so I think that's used just really effectively. Well, and even the temptation of the hero where courage promises, I'll get you yep. the first plane back and get you your legs. I've already got it approved by corporate and Jake is giving them Intel. He goes along with it in the beginning. Yep. The temptation and uh, to later, nope, you know, just to refuse that because he yep. knows the greater good that's that he's called to be. Yeah. The chosen one. Exactly. And then you have, you know, you mentioned the thing with, with Taruk and, and taking on that, the, the mantle of Taruk Makto and kind of being reborn that way, right? There's multiple rebirths in this. It's fascinating, right? That's kind of his, you know, he's willing to die if it, that's what it takes you know, and then he's finally at the end, he's reborn again as Navi. And then he actually becomes the leader of the Omotakaya at that point. And so now you kind of start the cycle again, where now he's the mentor of the next generation, which we'll see some of that in the next yes. film. So it, it beautifully fits monomyth. And so it just kind of cracks me up. People are like, yeah, this is like dances wolves. Well, yeah, it, it's like anything where you have, you know, this 
character on a journey where they go from, you know, person they're not to a person they need to become. And like, that's what this is. It's, it was yeah. meant to be that way. And James Cameron's been very open. Like, yeah, I borrowed from tons of different stuff. And it's like, if you borrow from one, that's plagiarism. You borrow from like 50. <laughs> now it's an homage. It's an homage. It's an honor. Right? It's paying honor to you. <laughs> well, yeah, it is. Right. That's kind of the way it works. You get to steal from lots of different things and then you're okay. Um, we were talking about world building several times all the way through. This is just, in my opinion, a fully realized alien world. It's got unique flora and fauna. It's got its own language, its own religion and history. Yes. It just, it feels real in so many ways. It does. Even, I mean, it just, it, the world that they build is detail and you cannot miss out on that. And if you do, there's a reason this movie made $3 billion. Yeah. It's universal. Yeah. Yeah. Say say that one more time. I interrupted you. The seamless building of what the world that they've done. Yeah. And the way it holds up. Yeah. And there's enough familiar that you, you're attached to it, but it's not so much that it fits. No, this is an American movie or a Japanese movie or middle European movie. Like it's kind of all, it's none of those, but also all of those at the same time. So, uh, final thoughts on, on avatar. Hmm. Two things. Uh, you know, I think, I think the theme of this movie is absolutely incredible. And I, I agree. Yes. This is a borrowing from other movies or honoring of other movies and, or retelling, but that's what makes it good. It's a familiar story. I know where the story is going to go, but they do it in such a way that makes you really be immersed in it. It's a two and a two and a half hour movie. Um, but it's a movie that sticks with you. It's a movie that makes you excited to go watch the sequel. And sometimes that's a good thing. Sometimes that's a bad thing, right? The sequel, will I be disappointed if it's not to the level of this? Um, but either way, I think with James, James Cameron's ability to detail and build a world and to do all these things and invest, it's something that you know, you're going to be, you're going to get your money's worth out of what you, of what you watch. And you're going to find a movie that Yes, you'll buy it or yes, you'll watch it again at some point. And then the other thing is, I think the relatability to a few of the stories of the hero's journey and Jake Sully and rooting for him. And uh, I like what you said in the beginning, Craig. This movie does not necessarily have a bunch of quotable movie, quotable lines, you know, that we would say. Um, But the one line that stands out to this entire movie that I that I walked away and it was the one line that I remembered was when he's talking about learning with Natiri where he had to follow and learn he said with Natiri it's learn fast or die and I think it's a great line that shows uh the harshness of hey we have to we you know we're all part that our energy is all part of of this world together and we borrow it to live our life and we return it back and and that's a great theme for anything, you know. Um, that's a great theme to put in any movie is that here's a character, there's honor, there's history, there's religion, there's there's a, a, a calling and a greatness outside of yourself. And in doing all that, it's it's you need to learn and you need to learn fast. And, uh, you know, and, and you're just part of it. And so it's, it's great. I think it's a great movie. I like it. Um, I'm looking forward to seeing the sequel. Nice. Yeah, I just wanted to just to add that one. I think one of the other themes of this film is really who are you, 
because the film definitely seems to suggest that we are souls, which I think is, is endlessly fascinating. Like humans and Navi at their core are spiritual beings. They're not, not this crude matter. Luminous beings are we, right? <laughs> I mean, it's, I think that's, I mean, like there is obviously there's the, you know, the Awa religion, but it, it's definitely a secular movie, but it's also at the same time, it's there. I think there's maybe some unintentional spirituality to this. And it's a little bit of, you know, can't we all get along because we're all, we're all people type of thing is happening here. But I just think that it's, it's showed that, that Jake is and Natiri that are, they're different species and they fall in love with each other. But they, that what's when the, I see you thing too, it's like, it's like, I understand your soul. I know you are a soul, not a creature, right? That the, the real person is the person that's the soul. And I just think in a, in a mainstream movie, that is a fascinating thing to explore. Absolutely. So as we close, we just want to say thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to connect with us, you can find us on Twitter and Facebook. Email us at readingbetweenreels at gmail.com or use the SpeakPipe app on our website. And if you enjoyed the show, please tell a friend. One last thing. Our next episode, last episode of the year, will be a review of Knives Out. Send us an email or voicemail about your favorite moments from Knives Out, and we'll share it on the next episode. 